When I first became a pastor, you know you're old and you say things like that. You know you're old when you, you do, somebody says, how long you been doing, how long you been a pastor and you stop and you go, longer than you've been alive. Kid. Whoa, 40 years. So permit this old to me, young to some others, man, an opportunity to do some reflecting uh, along the lines of uh, your kid, grandkids may be growing up if, your grandkids may be growing up if their firstborn 12-year-old granddaughter tells her dad, I know how to drive a car. <laughs> no, you don't. I don't care if you can reach the pedals and see over the steering wheel. I don't care if you are as tall as your mom, you don't know how to drive. And I'm not sure grandpa's really, really do teaching. <laughs> but maybe better me than somebody else. Yeah. That's all I'm thinking. At this point, in eight years, we might not talk about it. Six. Okay. Your grandkids may be growing up if one of your kids sends you a late night text message that reads, ah, help, my baby had a growth spurt and none of the clothes that fit her last week fit this week. What will she wear to school tomorrow? True story. Your grandkids may be growing up if the tooth fairy logs frequent flyer miles to their homes. Uh, I see, see a couple of my grandkids and I'm thinking, you guys may be having tinctures pretty soon. There's at least one of them that will not be eating corn on the cob this summer unless they, the new teeth come in faster than, uh, than it looks like they're going to. You know, we, we map the road to maturity for our kids, our grandkids, with markers like the first full night of sleep. Um, the, the, the business group I'm in, I, I think we are now up to five babies under a year in that group. So that's why I can say, that, you know, how long you guys, you know, you know, these are the people I ask me, how long have you been a pastor? And I'm going, how long have you been alive? Uh, I really am. I'm the oldest person in that room when we get together. It's it's fun, but it's also kind of scary. Uh, you know, we also talk, hey, they had the first solid meal. That's bittersweet. Think about it. You'll, you'll understand why. Uh, first steps, first words, first day of preschool, first job. Someday they'll have one. No, all my kids have jobs. Um, my grandkids are not there yet. High school graduation, all that. So we, we have these mile markers. But how do we spot a mature adult? We certainly know how to spot an immature adult. But how do we spot uh, a mature adult? So this week I, I thought, hey, just for the funds and giggles, uh, let's do a web search, you know, hit Google and say, what's the definition of maturity? Uh, one of the definitions, I read it to Connie and and she said, you lost me after about the third word. Uh, it was so complicated that it made me laugh. It was just ridiculous. Uh, so here's my simple uh, rewording of that. A person is mature when they've grown up until they don't grow up anymore. 
Okay, I, for some of, you, some, some of you got that, but let me read it one more time. A person is mature when they've grown up until they don't grow up anymore. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> but what does that mean, and when does that happen? Uh, on a less uh, humorous uh, and note, I did read a counselor, uh, a psychologist who, who wrote, like most therapists, he said, I'm seeing more and more anxiety in people uh, coming to, in for help. There's a sharper edge that lies between the, beneath the, the, the common concerns that I usually see. He says, we have become less and less, we have less and less faith in the basic adult capacity of the people and institutions making the world's most important decisions. I like the, I'm going to read that sentence again because it's important. We have less and less faith in the basic adult capacity of the people and institutions making the world's most important decisions. He went on to say, I had to edit this so you can fill in the blank that I, that I leave, however you want to. Uh, the, the, a patient of mine recently summed it up as well as anyone when she said frantically, who is running this place? By the way, that was published in 2019. Four years ago. I'm pretty sure the levels of anxiety and the levels of doubt uh, uh, in the basic adult capacity of people making decisions about the world's uh, most important decisions has certainly gotten worse since then. Simple emotional maturity, mental maturity, and human decency appear to me to be endangered species. Which brings me to another question. Uh, since we're in, those of us who are here in the room are in a church building on a Sunday morning, and those who are online have joined us, what does a mature follower of Jesus look like? How would you describe a mature follower of Jesus? A mature disciple of Jesus. Based on my conversations, now see this is this is not like a broad scientific study, okay? This is just my experience. If you don't like it, you can disagree with me and I won't fight you over it. But based on my conversations with people both inside and outside the church over the years, the majority agree that a mature follower of Jesus lives by a list of rules. Don't do that, can't do this, won't do those things, shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't, must do this, ought to do that. It's not everybody's opinion. But the majority of people act like that a mature Jesus follower, a mature disciple of Jesus lives by a list of rules. Obligations. I have this, I have this, I have always had this 
and we see to ask questions. And my question is, what if that definition of a mature Jesus follower is off target? This morning, I'm going to invite you to look with me at Paul's letter to the church in the Greek city of Colossae. We know it as Colossians uh, in our uh, collection of letters and books in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to look at two sections where he talks about mature disciples becoming mature. Uh, and um, so we're going to start in Colossians chapter 1. And then we'll jump to Colossians 4. Um, he mentions a guy named Epaphras. Um, Epaphras uh, was the one who took the message of Jesus to Colossae. He's the one who first went there and told them about Jesus. And he went and told Paul about them. And Paul sending them a letter to encourage them. And uh, because Epaphras has come to him, and Epaphras has been staying with Paul and working with Paul. Um, and so the two of them have kind of teamed up for a while. And Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to be reading, be reading verses 24 through 29. And then we'll jump to chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill, fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church. It's Jesus' body, the church. What is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God given to me for you in order to complete the word of God. That is... The mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known to them the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, we proclaim Jesus. By instructing and teaching all people with all wisdom, so that we may present every person mature in Christ. Toward this goal, I also labor, struggling according to his power that powerfully works in me. Now over in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he turns his attention to his friend Epaphras. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a slave of Christ, greets you. He is always struggling in prayer on your behalf so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I can testify that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. 
Hmm. So Paul and, and Epaphras are working hard. They're struggling so that the people in Colossae and in these other towns and cities can become mature in Christ. What is it that they're not working so hard to do? What is it that what is maturity in Christ? What is it they're shooting for? Paul, we we want to know. We want to know. I think, <clears throat> um, I don't know, from what I can see, Paul and Epaphras give live demonstrations of Jesus' love by the things that they do and say through their struggling and their suffering for that congregation in Colossae. So by their actions and their lifestyle, they, they're just, they're living demonstrations of Jesus' love. And that sets the pace and the example. And that answers the other question, how does maturity in Christ spread? Their live demonstrations of Jesus' love combine proclaiming Jesus, working in the Spirit's power, and intercessory prayer. I, and I looked at that actually just yesterday, it smacked me in the face. There's a theme. Proclaim Jesus. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's an old-fashioned preacher thing. Uh, old-fashioned because we don't, I, it's not. Other preachers do it a whole lot more than I do. And there's some that do it automatically. Occasionally, it's like this. It dropped into my lap. Uh, get, get all your le uh, points together to start in the same, with the same letter. P. <laughs> P is the letter to listen for. Proclaim Jesus. Power of the Holy Spirit. Pray to God. Proclaim Jesus. Power of the Holy Spirit. Pray to God. Theme, though, is not the P. Kind of misled you by telling you to listen for the words that start with the P. Sorry. Well, kind of. Here's the deal. God is the leading performer in the spread of maturity in Christ. Jesus' followers, like Paul and Epaphras, play supporting roles, but God, God's the lead performer. We proclaim Jesus Spirit provides the power, and our prayers are focused on and spoken to God, and He's the one who answers them. Paul talks about suffering. And so I started looking. I go, what is Paul talking about here? And, and so part of it's really obvious. Paul suffered quite a bit. And he records lists of some of the ways he suffered in other uh, of his letters. So some of the suffering was just literal physical 
suffering. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. Um, one time they, they thought they killed him by throwing rocks at him until they, they thought he was dead. Or he actually was dead and God raised him. We're, the, the, the story in Acts isn't really clear. Uh, although I would have loved to have been there to know exactly what the... I, I don't care really whether he was dead and then came back to life or if he, they just thought he was dead. But both, either way, he got up and went back into town. I want I wanted to be there. I would have liked to have been there to see the look on everybody's face. You look like the guy we just killed. What are you doing back here? Well, I thought I'd come back and tell you more about Jesus. You know, he really loves you guys. And I'm working on it. <laughs> to be honest, it's not as easy as it was yesterday. It hurts more today. And as I look, suffering, you don't have to get nearly killed or killed to suffer. Suffering can be just simple acts of other-centered serving, of gladly putting others first, of having a cross-shaped expression of love in our lives. Paul talked about struggling in prayer. Interceding, intercession, praying with Jesus and the Holy, joining Jesus and the Holy Spirit in prayer. Both Jesus and the Spirit are currently, right now, interceding for us. Now, there are two things I know about the Trinity. One is, the Trinity is united, always. So if Jesus is praying, he's praying the Father's will. Always did, always will. And if the Spirit is praying, he's praying the same thing Jesus is praying, and praying the Father's will. Always has and always will. And God is answering because he always hears and answers prayers according to his will. So if I really want to be having my prayers, I don't go in with my agenda. I go in and listen to the conversation that's already going on and just start throwing amens to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Oh, that was good, Jesus! Help me agree with you more. <laughs> oh, Holy Spirit, not my will. Right? Amen. That's where the struggle is. Because the struggle is leaving my, letting go of my agenda. Struggling, labor, working hard. Paul uses those words. This is not easy. 
everything that Paul and Epaphras did and do and we do to bring others to maturity in Christ isn't easy and it doesn't come automatically. That's their goal, though. Their goal is to bring people to maturity in Jesus, in, in Christ. And they do it by taking up their cross and following Jesus. So the sermon in a sentence today is simple, it's short. It's simple to say, it is short. Easy to remember, even, I hope. It's a short, simple prayer. Jesus, your cross is my cross. That doesn't mean it's comfortable. Crosses are not intended to be comfortable. There are no padded, adjustable crosses. They're not meant to be fitted. They're not ergonomic. They're not ergonomic. They're meant to kill you. <clears throat> When you follow Jesus, he's, he sculpts your life into the shape of his cross. Sharing the gospel, proclaiming Jesus, always costs you something. It costs Jesus everything. So if we're going to follow him, it's going to cost us. You cannot repeatedly simply recount Jesus' life story from a distance. When I was, uh, I have not figured out how to do it yet because it's still available. And I watched a movie many, many years ago, 40 years ago, called The Gospel Blimp. I'm not going to ask if any of you have ever seen it. Some of you have, because I actually shared it with some people. Um, it's sad and funny at the same time. It's about a group of Christians who decide they want to witness to this guy's next door neighbor. So they buy a blimp to pull a sign across. The, they say, hey, we not only do we listen to him, we witness to everybody else in town. And we'll, we'll buy this blimp and we'll, it'll, it'll go across town every Saturday because everybody's out working in the yard and we'll have a Bible verse. Oh, it's too expensive to have the whole verse up there, so we'll just put up the reference. Surely everybody has a Bible and they'll know how to look it up. Don't get me started. Somebody said something, don't call me Shirley in a movie. I don't remember what that, no, I do remember, never mind. Uh, <clears throat> so they tried that for a while, and that didn't seem to be working. So then they decided that they would roll up gospel tracks into little, little, 
little packages and tie ribbons around them, and they flew over town and they bombarded their neighbors. Oh, their neighbors were thrilled with having to pick up all that litter. None of them ever bothered to open it up to see what was inside. They just kept buckets with them as they went out to mow the yard so they could pick up all the trash that this blimp was. Then they had the great idea of putting a radio transmitter in the blimp. Now, I'm not exactly sure how radio transmitters work. If you have questions about that, talk to Mr. Gordon. He, he does the ham radio stuff. He, he works with those things. He knows a little more about that kind of thing. But somehow, the local Polish radio station, it must have been Bay City that did this. <laughs> I don't know, but the, the local station that was Somehow the local Polish polka radio station's signal hijacked their signal and their signal just obliterated every other radio and television signal in town that Saturday evening. And the only thing anybody could hear was loud Polish polka music. It was a very unpopular night. Uh, almost got the blimp grounded forever. Uh, until they figure out a way to make sure that never happened again. Um, they got together at the end of the movie, they got together and but they were very concerned about this one guy who had stopped coming to their, you know, whose neighbor they had stopped coming to see. Yeah. Some of you are wondering, where's this story going? You're going to find out in just a moment. The neighbor that they had, the guy's neighbor, the guy whose neighbor they had started that went to witness to, that's why they bought the blimp. They got worried about their friend because he had stopped coming to the blimp meetings. And he started hanging out with his neighbor. You know what happened when he hung out with his neighbor? He talked to his neighbor about Jesus. And his neighbor and his neighbor's wife decided to follow Jesus. Oh, they were all excited. That's wonderful. And they invited them to come to the next blimp meeting. And they both looked at them and said, No, we're going to take our neighbor from across the street and go fishing. And they couldn't understand why they would go fishing with some guy across the street when they could go to a blimp meeting. Now, here's what I was going to, this is what I'm trying to tell you. You cannot repeatedly, and this is what this sentence is all about, you cannot repeatedly recount Jesus' life story from a distance. You can't tell the story of Jesus from a blimp. Or anything like a blimp. It has to be done person to person. You have to make a connection. You have to build a relationship. And you can't solely focus on anonymous acts of kindness that you do at arm's length. 
Well, those are good. I'm not saying those things aren't good. But they're inadequate. You have to treat people nice, kindly, lovingly, up front and personal. Well, a blimp can reach a whole lot more people than one. Oh. Can it? It can tick off a whole lot more people than one. A whole town in one hour. Especially a whole town that wanted to watch their favorite television show instead of listening to polka music. Offering the gospel to others eventually means becoming vulnerable to them through your words, your actions, and the whole way of relating to them. You've got to make a connection. It's a decisive series of actions that demonstrates Jesus' love to them. But what if they don't love you back? That's part of being shaped into the cross. I'm just so glad he didn't step in heaven and go, well, <coughs> Father, I don't think I want to go because some of them aren't going to love me back. Just being honest, there are days when I don't love them back. There have been several days in the not too distant past when I've been ticked at. Okay, scary. The pastor just told everybody he was mad at God. Okay, uh, Pastor, you can look this Chris Conrad at thegor.org is my regional superintendent, and you can send him an email. And if you didn't catch that, ask me, and I'll tell you again. Uh, if you need it, I can give you a phone number to reach the office over there. Um, you can tell him. It's okay. Well, the gospel can never be less. It can never be less than proclaiming Jesus. The story of who he is and what he's done. But it moves on the muscles of love. And the muscles of love grow through acts of kindly putting others first. The gospel must be extended in the same way that it was given to us in the first place. Personally. Jesus didn't shout from heaven. He sang up to this woman. Came baby in a manger. Carpenter in Nazareth. 
teacher crucified on the cross and resurrected king. But he did it in person. The gospel is more than simply telling people about Jesus. The gospel is more than an explanation about Jesus. It is a demonstration of Jesus. Someone may not remember what you say about Jesus, but they will remember. They will never forget when you allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and make you into a live demonstration of the supernatural, eternal, changing, eternity-changing love of Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, if this world needs anything, it needs walking live demonstrations of Jesus. I don't, my heart breaks when I see Christians, church people, who are not acting any more mature than the rest of the people of this world. <clears throat> But my heart breaks even more when I'm not a live demonstration of his love. Okay. I'll be honest, I got grandkids that are getting older, and I'm looking at myself and I'm going, the clock is ticking, Jesus. You got so much work to do on this boy. I don't think you're going to get it done. Help. See, what he wants to do needs to involve our words, our deeds, our dispositions, our overall posture and toward people, all people. When we truly share the gospel, it comes at a cost because it changes us from the inside out. It's not something we can do out here. It starts in here. When we are involved with Jesus, he stretches our lives and he shapes our lives into this cross. Jesus, your cross is my cross. <clears throat> right here, right now, Holy Spirit invites you and me be living demonstrations of Jesus' love. But you and I cannot demonstrate what we don't experience and continue to experience. Jesus, you, your cross is my cross. One of my spiritual mentors gave me a challenging list of questions. I'm going to, I'm going to read them now. I'm going to share them later on the Facebook in the Champions of Hope Facebook group. I'm just going to encourage you to listen to them. They're going to, they challenge me all the time. They're going to help you. He says the test as to whether we are following Jesus is this. Are we going somewhere? Well, 
changing. Do I need him more today than I did yesterday? Do I want to be like him? Am I loving those who are hard to love? Those who are sometimes the closest to us. Am I sick of my sin? Especially those that still will not leave me alone. Increasingly marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He concludes with this. These are the deep inner questions of those who fix their eyes on Jesus and set their hearts to follow him. Jesus, your cross is my cross. So that's my invitation this morning. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I especially want to thank those of you who joined us online and invite uh, <coughs> you, if you've not already done so, to join the Champions of Hope Facebook group. The uh, information's in the description for the event. Look forward to connecting with you there. For all of us, the time uh, this time of worship is over, but our work has just begun. It's just beginning. We, you, and I are sent, but we do not go alone. Go with King Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.